Hey, Murderish listeners, get excited because Crimes of the Centuries podcast is back for a second season. From Obsessed Network and Amber Hunt, an award-winning reporter, Crimes of the Centuries dives deep into long-forgotten true crime tales you've probably never heard of. Season 2 takes you inside crime stories that push the boundaries of social norms of their day, like the case in which numerous headless torsos were found, and cases that involved sexual details far too salacious for print at that time. Recently named by Rolling Stone as one of the 10 best podcasts of 2021, Crimes of the Centuries rediscovers the true crime stories that shocked the nation. Cases so unbelievable that we thought we'd never forget them, but somehow we did. Hear these stories right now by finding and following Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you guys, I can't believe I'm saying this, but welcome to the 100th episode of Murderish. I launched this podcast a little over four years ago with no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no expectations going into it. I just loved podcasts, was fascinated by true crime, and wanted to try something new. It's hard to put into words what this experience has been like with all of the ups and downs, triumphs and failures, and milestones I never thought I'd reach. Here I am, millions of downloads later, and about to walk you through a case for the 100th time. What a trip. I've always said that my favorite aspect of podcasting are the connections I've made with listeners and other podcasters. I've had the privilege of connecting with many of you through social media. All of the comments, DMs, mentions in your stories, and emails you guys have sent have energized me to keep going. Social media posts from you guys complimenting the show, having dialogue about cases I've covered, and showing support in all forms has truly kept me motivated to continue producing content even when I wanted to quit, and yes, that has happened a few times. I cannot thank you all enough for supporting the show and me. Without you, there would be no murderish. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you all for listening to the show and showing support in so many different ways. The case I'm covering in this 100th episode is a big one. It's a case you've likely heard of and formed an opinion on. Like so many of you, this case completely engulfed my thoughts since the moment I learned about it. And the case is still ongoing today, more than two decades after someone was convicted for the crime. Frankly, I had no intentions of covering this case on Murderish because it's been the subject of many other podcasts. As you guys know, I typically cover lesser-known cases on the show. That said, after a recent guest appearance on Bob Ruff's podcast, True Crime Binge, I was reminded just how much I am invested in this case. And with some urging from Bob, I decided to cover it on Murderish. So, without further delay, let's get into the 100th episode of Murderish. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. In January of 1999, an 18-year-old high school student mysteriously vanished after school one afternoon. Four weeks later, her body was found in a shallow grave in a nearby wooded park. The following month, an arrest was made and the suspect was eventually convicted for murdering her. When it happened, this tragic story barely made the local papers, 
let alone the national news. 14 years later, after becoming the subject of the most downloaded podcast on record, the case became an international phenomenon and one of the most talked about in modern history. It turned millions of people into armchair lawyers and detectives overnight, igniting the rise of the true crime genre as we know it today. Years after the trial, new evidence was uncovered, calling into question the validity of the conviction. Through it all, the convicted party has always maintained his innocence. The victim's family has likewise maintained that the right person was convicted and punished for killing their daughter. For many people though, questions remain. Has the killer been brought to justice or was someone wrongfully convicted? Is there another person law enforcement should have investigated further? Did the convicted killer's accomplice even have anything to do with the crime? Did legal or law enforcement misconduct play a role in the case or is everyone wasting their time fighting for justice when it's already been served? These are the questions, among many others, that keep this case top of mind for millions of people to this day. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the highly contested and polarizing murder case of Heyman Lee. This case takes us to Woodlawn, a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland. Located eight miles west of downtown Baltimore, Woodlawn is often warm and muggy during the summer months. The winters are typically cold and snowy, with peak snowfall usually arriving in February. The city has several large, heavily wooded parks just outside of its borders. These parks boast hiking trails and historic structures, as well as waterfalls, rivers, and streams that eventually flow out into the Chesapeake Bay. Gwynn Falls Park and Leakin Park, in particular, combine to form one continuous wooded area spanning over 1,000 acres. Known simply as Leakin Park, the area has the macabre distinction of having had 79 bodies discovered there since 1946. In addition, the vast park was the setting for Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2, a movie that filmed there in the spring of 2000. Though it has a lower crime rate than the city of Baltimore, Woodlawn's crime rate is significantly higher than the state average, according to aviavibes.com. In January of 1999, Eminem topped the music charts with his hit song, My Name Is, along with What a Girl Wants by Christina Aguilera. On January 13, 1999, the weather in Woodlawn was characteristically cold. An icy rain had fallen early in the morning, but it wasn't drastic enough for schools to be closed. In the afternoon on that Wednesday, a six-year-old girl waited eagerly for her cousin to pick her up from Camfield Early Learning Center. As time passed by, the girl was soon the only child left at school, and teachers realized she had been forgotten. At 3.30 p.m., young Lee received a call from the Early Learning Center telling him that his cousin had not been picked up. Heyman Lee, Young's older sister, was supposed to pick up their cousin, and it wasn't like her to be so irresponsible. After sending someone to pick up the child, Young called Hay's friends to see if they knew where she was, but nobody had seen her. 
Hay had a large, close-knit friend group, so it was odd and worrisome that none of them had heard from her. Hay's family called the Baltimore County PD that same day to report her missing. Sadly, January 13, 1999, would be the last day that anyone would see Hay alive. On February 9th, nearly four weeks after Hay failed to pick up her cousin, Alonzo Sellers was working on a project that required a tool called a plane to shave down a wooden door frame. Sellers was a groundskeeper at Coppin State University in Baltimore. On that day, there was no plane in the maintenance department, so during his lunch hour, Sellers decided to drive home to get his own tool. Sellers' house was in Gwyn Oak, about five miles away from the university, and roughly a 15-minute drive. Before leaving his house with the plane, Sellers grabbed a 22-ounce Budweiser to drink on the way back to work, a route that would take him through Leakin Park. About halfway into his drive, mere minutes from work, Sellers got the overwhelming urge to urinate. He pulled to the side of the road, walked across two lanes to the other side, and back into the wooded park to find a private spot to relieve himself. After walking about 125 feet into Leakin Park, Sellers stepped over a large fallen tree, unzipped his pants, and just as he was going to urinate, he saw something odd. In front of him, it looked like there was hair coming out from the dirt. Upon closer inspection, Sellers saw a foot protruding from the dirt, as well as some clothing. It appeared to be a partially buried body. Sellers quickly made his way back to his truck and drove the rest of the way to Coppin State University, where he contacted Ronald Collins, the chief of security. At about 1.20 that afternoon, Collins called the Baltimore City PD to report what Sellers had told him. Homicide detectives from Baltimore PD accompanied Sellers back to Leakin Park, where he pointed out his gruesome discovery. It was determined that the body was that of a young Asian female. The body was positively identified a few days later as being Heyman Lee. Heyman Lee was born on October 15, 1980 in South Korea to her mother Yoon Kim and her father. She had a younger brother named Young. In 1992, Hay's mother made the decision to emigrate her family to the United States. Hay's father remained in South Korea and had little contact with his family after they left. Yoon and her children arrived in the Woodlawn area where they moved in with Hay's grandparents and two cousins. At one point, Yoon was engaged to a man who lived in California, and she moved her children there for several months when Hay was about 16 years old. But when the engagement ended, Yoon, Hay, and Young moved back to Woodlawn. Hay attended Woodlawn High School, where she was an honor student in the magnet program for gifted students. She was a scholar athlete on the varsity lacrosse and varsity field hockey teams. She was also the manager of the boys' wrestling team, part of the ecology club and French club, and was a member of the Students Against Destructive Decisions, an organization dedicated to the safety and well-being of students. Hay also worked part-time at LensCrafters in anticipation of one day becoming an optician. Hay was very well-liked by Woodlawn students and faculty alike and those who knew her used words like kind, joyful, and bubbly to describe her. Hay was seemingly always happy and very funny, even though her jokes were often goofy and cringeworthy. 
She had a wide, unforgettable smile and seemed to be confident in all she did. Hay was into fashion and she secretly enjoyed the Teletubbies children's TV show. And she rooted for the Dallas Cowboys football team, not because she liked football, but purely because she liked the color of their uniforms. In February of 1999, Hay was a senior set to graduate with honors in the coming months. Hay had a very promising future, poised to be a leader no matter where life took her. As news spread about Hay's body being found, her friends were shocked and devastated. For weeks, they had hoped there was a reasonable explanation for her absence and that she would come back home soon. Many of them had not even considered the possibility that she might be dead. Hay's family was beyond distraught and felt as if they were stuck in a nightmare. Hay's mother, Yoon, felt as though her heart had been taken from her. She couldn't understand who would possibly want to hurt her daughter. The initial missing person case was handled by the Baltimore County Police Department. On January 13th, the day Hay was reported missing, Officer Adcock responded to the Lee residence at about 5.15 p.m. to take the report. According to young Lee, his sister was not having any trouble at home and had never run away before. Young provided Adcock with Hay's diary, hoping it might be of use. Officer Adcock called two of Hay's friends, Aisha Pittman and Adnan Syed, who both said that Hay had been at school that day. Aisha said she last saw Hay around 2.15 p.m. when classes let out, and Adnan last saw Hay sometime prior to the end of the school day. Adcock wrote in his notes that Hay was supposed to give Adnan a ride home, but he was running late, so Adnan figured she must have left without him. Neither Aisha nor Adnan knew where Hay was. Adcock also tried multiple times to call Hay's new boyfriend, Don Kleindienst, but couldn't reach him until 1.30 a.m. the following day. Don, who was 22 years old and a co-worker of Hay's, told Adcock that he didn't know where Hay was and he hadn't talked to her since January 12th, the day prior to her disappearance. Adcock called LensCrafters, Hay's employer, and discovered that she had not shown up for her work shift the evening of the 13th. In addition, Hay's gray 1998 Nissan Sentra was also missing. Follow-up reports noted that local hospitals were checked for Hay, and the parking lots of hotels, motels, and high schools were checked for her vehicle, but nothing was found. The area surrounding Don's house was also checked by the Harford County Sheriff's Department, but nothing of note was located. On February 6th, a canine search of the grounds and immediate area surrounding Woodlawn High School was conducted, but nothing was found. Hay's computer was later searched and it was discovered that her AOL user profile was last accessed on January 16th, three days after she went missing. Being your own boss is such a great feeling, but maybe you haven't figured out how to get your business off the ground. With Shopify, you can sell, ship, and process payments for your online business, no matter if it's new or already established. Gone are the days when only big businesses had access to crucial resources to start and grow. Shopify gives entrepreneurs with businesses of all sizes the tools to sell around the globe. 
Plus, you'll have access to valuable analytics on your growth, conversion rates, profit margins, and more, all of which are important to have a grasp on in order to grow and succeed in business. Once you get started on the Shopify platform, you'll be ready to sell to customers online and across social networks like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Go to shopify.com murderish, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com murderish right now. Shopify.com murderish. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? Nope. Thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. With Sundance Now, I get ad-free streaming that caters to my obsession with stellar storytelling. Whether you're looking for original dramas, international thrillers, or true crime shows, Sundance Now has it and more. I've been impatiently awaiting every new episode of A Discovery of Witches, a Sundance Now original that premiered on January 8th. In the seven-episode series, Matthew and Diana return from their trip to 1590 to find tragedy. They have to find the Book of Life and the missing pages before it's too late. Enemies are plotting against them, and a monster from Matthew's past has been awaiting his return in order to get revenge. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code MURDERISH. That's SundanceNow.com code MURDERISH for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com code MURDERISH. As the mom of an eight-year-old, it's tough to get a moment to myself. But when I do, it's nice to lose myself for a while in my favorite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. One of my favorite times to play is while I'm standing in line at the grocery store. It's crazy how fast the time goes by when I'm on a winning streak playing Best Fiends. I just passed level 1621 and I'm already planning the next time I'll be able to play so I can get to 1700. Here's a tip, once you get to the level that I'm at, I've found that going for the longest possible match with every move is key. While I play Best Fiends, I collect the cutest characters and I get more and more as I continue to play. Although I mostly play Best Fiends to lose myself for a bit, I also love that it feels like I'm exercising my brain while I play. Here's the thing, the more I win, the more challenges I face. You'll never run out of levels or get bored because there are thousands of them and new levels are added constantly. If you're competitive like me, find a friend who you can challenge and share your Best Fiends victories with. Trust me, once you start playing, there is no stopping. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. On January 22nd, nine days after Hay went missing, Baltimore County Detective Sergeant Joe O'Shea took over the missing person's case. That day, he spoke with Don, and this time, Don said that he and Hay spent the evening of January 12th together at his house. He said Hay left around 10.30 p.m., and once she got home, they talked on the phone until 3 o'clock the next morning. Don said Hay had been happy, though she mentioned having an argument with her mother about breaking curfew and violating phone rules. 
As for the time Hay went missing on January 13th, Don said he was working from 9 to 6 p.m. at the Hunt Valley Lens Crafters, which was not his usual store. This was the first time that Don mentioned to law enforcement that he had worked on the day that Hay went missing. He had not mentioned this when he spoke with Adcock on January 14th. For unknown reasons, detectives never spoke with anyone at the Hunt Valley store to confirm whether Don had worked there that day. They also never asked Don for his timesheet in order to substantiate his alibi. Don told O'Shea that he had filled in for a co-worker at the Hunt Valley store, and when he got home at 7 p.m., his father told him to call the Owings Mill store, which was his home store. Don's father said he was told that Hay had not shown up for her shift or called in, and that she could not be located. During his call with Sergeant O'Shea, Don said that Hay was scheduled to work from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. the day she went missing, and she was supposed to call him when she was off so they could meet up. Don said he had been seeing Hay since December of 1998, after she broke up with Adnan. Don said their first official date was January 1st, 1999. Although initially Don had not mentioned that he worked the day Hay went missing, he eventually told O'Shea that he worked from 9 to 6 p.m. and got home around 7 p.m. that evening. Adcock, who was the first to make contact with Don, had made repeated attempts to contact him the day that Hay went missing. Adcock reported that he was able to make contact with Don but not until 1.30 a.m. the following morning. Why did Don wait six and a half hours to call Adcock back? Even today, there doesn't seem to be any clarity regarding where Don was or what he was doing between the hours of 7 p.m. on January 13th and 1.30 a.m. on the 14th. O'Shea spoke with Adnan on January 25th and February 1st. During those conversations, Adnan said he was in class with Hay on January 13th from 12.50 to 2.15 p.m., and then he went to track practice after school. That was the last time he saw her. O'Shea asked Adnan to confirm what Officer Adcock had written in his report, specifically if Hay was supposed to give Adnan a ride after school. Adnan told O'Shea that Adcock was incorrect. He was not going to get a ride from Hay because he had driven his own car that day. Adnan told O'Shea about dating Hay in 1998 and having to hide their relationship from his parents because he wasn't allowed to date. Adnan's parents wanted him to adhere to Muslim principles that prohibited dating and sex before marriage. Though Hay and Adnan eventually broke up because the secrecy and religious differences became too much to overcome, they remained close friends. On January 27th, O'Shea contacted Hay's friend, Debbie Warren. She told him that she last saw Hay at school on January 13th at about 3 p.m. near the gym. Debbie said that Hay told her that she was in a hurry and she was going to see Don at the mall. However, Debbie did not actually see Hay leave school. On February 1st, O'Shea spoke with Woodlawn High School sports trainer Inez Butler and French teacher Hope Schaub. Butler said Hay had been upset on January 13th because she was having problems at home and she wanted to contact her father in California. Hay was the manager for the wrestling team and was supposed to go to the match that night, but she told Butler she was not going to be there. Hope Schaub told Detective O'Shea that Hay was her teacher's aide, as well as one of her French students. 
Hay had been excited about an upcoming trip to France, planned for June, which she had already paid for. Shab remembered that the only problem Hay had at school was during the homecoming dance in the fall of 1998, when Adnan's parents showed up to confront him about dating her. She had been embarrassed because it happened in front of so many people, but the issue eventually blew over. Shab also said that Adnan and Hay were still good friends after their breakup, and that Hay was happy with Don. Later that day, O'Shea met with Don's manager from the Owings Mills Lenscrafters, Kathy Michelle, who also happened to be Don's mother's girlfriend. Michelle confirmed the January 13th schedule for Hay at the Owings Mills store, as well as for Don at the Hunt Valley store, where he had covered for a co-worker's shift. Though O'Shea received verbal confirmation from Don's manager regarding him working at the Hunt Valley store the day Hay went missing, he did not request any documentation to back this up. Furthermore, O'Shea never noted that Don's manager was also his mother's girlfriend, which was a potential conflict. O'Shea also met with Hay's uncle, who told him that Hay had been arguing with her mother about curfew rules. He remembered that on January 3rd, Hay had been out with Don and didn't return home until one in the morning. On February 9th, Alonzo Sellers came upon Hay's body in Leakin Park. Baltimore PD homicide detectives Greg McGillivary and William Ritz responded to the 4400th block of Franklin Town Road, along with Sellers, where he pointed out the body. Reports indicated that Hay's body was found partially buried on the north side of a 40-foot downed tree. Her body was basically lying parallel to the tree. Beyond the fallen tree, there was a stream called Dead Run. Hay's feet pointed northwest and her head pointed southeast. Hay was officially pronounced dead at 2 p.m. by McGillivary. Crime lab personnel responded to process the scene, as well as a forensic scientist, medical examiners, city surveyors, and the FBI. Hay had been buried in a shallow area with dirt and leaves on top of most of her body, except for a few areas that had been exposed to the air. She was found lying on her right side with her left leg on top of her right leg. Her left arm was awkwardly bent at a 90-degree angle behind her back. Her right arm was outstretched underneath her head and then bent at the elbow with the forearm and hand angling up, which caused her fingers to stick out from the dirt. A large rock was found placed on top of that arm. Her head was facing downward at a 45-degree angle. Underneath Hay's blouse, her bra had been pulled up above her breasts, leaving them exposed. The skirt she was wearing was bunched up at her waist, revealing her underwear and pantyhose. She was also wearing several rings and necklaces. An unknown fiber was recovered from her outer clothing as well as from underneath her body on top of the soil. Other recovered items included a section of clothesline or rope and an empty bottle of liquor, both lying a few inches away from Hay's body. Also recovered were feathers located on the fallen tree, numerous bullet casings, and a condom wrapper from alongside the road, several blockbuster video game cases from the opposite side of the road, and tire tracks in the dirt just off the road, which were casted for preservation. On February 10th, Dr. Margarita Carell, assistant medical examiner, and Dr. Marlon Aquino, associate pathologist, conducted the autopsy. 
Their report indicated injuries to Hay's neck muscles, dislocation of the hyoid bone, which is found near the top of the neck and holds up the jaw and larynx, bruising on the right side of her neck and petechial hemorrhages in her left eye. There was also evidence of blunt force trauma to the right back and right side of her head. There were no other signs of injury or anything indicative of defensive wounds. The cause of death was determined to be manual strangulation. The manner of death was homicide. On February 11th, Sharon Talmadge, latent print supervisor of the Baltimore PD Crime Lab, compared fingerprints from the body to latent prints taken from Hayes' bedroom. The results confirmed what everybody already suspected. The prints were a match for Heyman Lee. What began as a Baltimore County PD missing persons case was now a Baltimore City Police Department murder investigation, one that would eventually be scrutinized by millions of people. The story Alonzo Sellers told Baltimore PD detectives about how he came upon Hayes' body was odd. Detectives found it strange that he would trek back into the woods for over 125 feet just for privacy to urinate, especially given how close he was to his workplace. When investigators dug into Sellers' background, they learned of some disturbing behavior he'd exhibited in the past. Sellers had multiple previous arrests for indecent exposure. Given the nature of those charges, it seemed even more odd that Sellers would go to such great lengths for privacy. Authorities administered two polygraph tests, and the first time around, Sellers failed it. In the first test, he was asked if he was trying to withhold information from investigators. He said no and failed. In the second test, Sellers was asked if he knew the method by which Hay had been killed. He said no and passed. After the two polygraphs were administered, Sellers was cleared as a suspect. Jada Lambert, an 18-year-old woman from Woodlawn, had been found strangled and dumped by a Baltimore Park stream eight months prior to Hay's murder. Local newspapers reported that there could be a link between Jada and Hay's murder, but there is no indication that detectives actively pursued the possible connection. Once Don's alibi was verbally corroborated by his mother's girlfriend, who was also Don's manager, he wasn't investigated any further. It seems apparent that investigators focused their attention on Adnan Syed as early as February 3rd, a few days before Hay's body was found. According to case files, Adnan was the only name that detectives ran through law enforcement databases at the time. Then, on February 12th, Three days after Hayes' body was found, Detective Daryl Massey reported receiving two untraceable anonymous calls from someone he described as sounding like an 18 to 21-year-old Asian male. Massey did not clarify what he intended by Asian, which could have meant any number of accents or dialects. The anonymous caller reportedly told detectives to look at Adnan for Hayes' murder because the two of them used to go to Leakin Park to have sex. The caller also said that Hay broke up with Adnan right before she disappeared, and that Adnan once made statements to a friend that if he ever hurt Hay, he would get rid of her car in a lake. Although detectives were unable to corroborate any of the caller's claims, that anonymous call was enough to solidify Adnan as their number one suspect, and in fact, 
According to case files, they never looked at anyone else from that point on. Adnan Masood Syed was born on May 21, 1981, in Baltimore, Maryland, to Syed Rahman and Shamim Syed. Syed and Shamim emigrated from Peshawar, Pakistan, and were brought together by an arranged marriage. Syed came to Baltimore first, and Shamim joined him later. Adnan, along with his older brother, Tanvir, and younger brother, Yusuf, were all born in America. The family of five were practicing Muslims and heavily involved at their local mosque. As a child, Adnan enjoyed drawing. At the young age of nine, Adnan wrote and illustrated a short story entitled Larry the Lion. He was known to be responsible and helpful, often assisting his mother with the busy daycare that she ran from their house. Adnan attended Woodlawn High School, and like Hay, he was in the magnet program for gifted students. Adnan, who played on the football team and ran track, was very popular and well-liked by students and staff. Those who knew Adnan described him as being friendly to everyone, outgoing, charming, and confident. His best friends also knew him to be down-to-earth and goofy at times. He was also ambitious and strived to have a career in the medical field. As a first step toward that goal, he received training as an EMT and worked as an ambulance technician. In February of 1999, Adnan was a senior in high school, set to graduate in a few months. In the spring of 1998, Adnan asked Hay to attend the junior prom with him. She said yes, and they began dating shortly thereafter. They were together for about 10 months, which included a few short breakups. Their relationship was full of love, happiness, and a fair amount of teenage drama, which was chronicled by Hay in her diary. She wrote things like, Adnan is the sweetest guy. I hope me and my baby could stay together till we graduate. I'm much in love with him and he loves me like crazy. But Hay also confessed that she was conflicted about their relationship. She and Adnan had to keep their relationship a secret from their parents, mostly due to the fact that Adnan was Muslim and wasn't allowed to date before marriage. The sneaking around took a toll on them and they broke up several times because of it, but they always ended up back together. Hay struggled with the idea that Adnan had to choose between her and his faith. She wrote in her diary, It irks me to know that I'm against his religion. He called me a devil a few times. I know he was only joking, and I hate the fact that I'm the cause of his sin. Still, Hay and Adnan managed to stay together despite these difficulties. But by December of 1998, Hay started having feelings for her co-worker, Don Kleindienst. On December 9th, Hay wrote about missing Don's baby blues and that she was thinking about him for hours, even though she loved Adnan. She doodled both Adnan's and Don's name on the pages of her diary, illustrating how torn she felt. On December 10th, Hay wrote that she was feeling guilty about how often Don was on her mind. A short time later, Adnan and Hay broke up in mid-December, but by all accounts, the two remained close friends. After receiving the anonymous call on February 12, 1999, detectives subpoenaed Adnan's cell phone records. They noticed one number was called repeatedly on the day Hay went missing. The number was for Jennifer Jen Pusateri. On February 26, detectives made contact with Jen in front of her home and asked her to come by the station. Later that night, 
Jen met with detectives and told them that she didn't know anything about Heyman Lee. The next day, however, with her attorney present, Jen told detectives a much different story. She said her friend, Jay Wilds, had Adnan's cell phone and car on January 13th, the day that Hay went missing. In the evening, Jay asked Jen to pick him up at the Westview Mall, and when she got there, he told her that Adnan had killed Hay and then buried her. Jay told Jen that he did not help with the crime or burial, but Adnan showed him Hay's dead body inside the trunk of a car in the Best Buy parking lot. Jen said Jay told her that Adnan buried Hay in Leakin Park that evening while Jay watched. Detectives then interviewed Jay late in the evening on February 27th and into the early morning hours of the 28th. He told them that he had borrowed Adnan's car in order to shop for a birthday present for his girlfriend, Stephanie McPherson. Later that day, he said Adnan showed him Hay's dead body in the trunk of her own car somewhere along Edmondson Avenue. This differed from Jen's story, as she said Jay told her he saw Hay's body in the parking lot of a Best Buy. At about 2.45 a.m. on February 28th, after questioning Jay for hours, Jay led detectives to Hay's vehicle, which he claimed had been parked at that location by Adnan for the last six weeks. Based on Jay's statements, detectives obtained an arrest warrant for Adnan, charging him with the murder of Heyman Lee. Adnan was arrested at 6 a.m. on February 28th at his home on Johnny Cake Road in Woodlawn. He was taken to the Baltimore PD Homicide Unit, where he waived his rights to a lawyer after being Mirandized. He was interrogated by Detectives McGillivary and Ritz for six hours. Adnan didn't know it at the time, but his family had hired an attorney on his behalf. And that attorney was at the Baltimore PD station while detectives were questioning Adnan. Additionally, the attorney had requested to see Adnan numerous times, but detectives never stopped the interrogation to allow Adnan's attorney to see him. All of this happened behind the scenes and without Adnan's knowledge. Meanwhile, throughout the six-hour interrogation, Adnan never wavered in his denial of any involvement in Hayes' disappearance or murder. After the long interrogation, 17-year-old Adnan was transported to Central Booking Intake Center, having never been allowed to see or speak with his parents or his lawyer. The next day, he was moved to the Baltimore City Detention Center. Over the course of the next few months, several bail hearings took place. Adnan's attorney at the time, Doug Colbert, argued that Adnan should be granted bail because he was a U.S.-born citizen with no criminal record. He also had a huge support system with his family and the Muslim community ready to put up their homes as collateral for his bail. The community was willing to look after Adnan and make sure he was present for all future court dates. Assistant State's Attorney Vicki Wash argued that this support system was actually a reason for Adnan to be denied bail. She claimed that Adnan's community offered him limitless resources and they would no doubt help him flee to Pakistan. As can be seen on trial video taken that day, Wash claimed that there was a pattern in the United States where young Pakistani males had been jilted, committed murder, and fled to Pakistan where they could not be extradited. 
She also claimed that Adnan had an uncle in Pakistan who could make people disappear. Adnan was denied bail and remained in custody pending his trial. Vicky Wash's statements were later found to be false, and though she wrote an apology letter to the court for her inaccuracies, it did not change Adnan's no-bail status. After February 28th, Jay Wilds met with detectives for follow-up interviews at least three more times. Every time they met, notable details in Jay's story changed. Some of the interviews were recorded on cassette tape by Detectives McGillivary and Ritz. However, as noted by their own references on the recordings, numerous pre-interviews took place prior to the tape recorder being turned on. At that time, it was common practice for law enforcement to conduct unrecorded interviews and only to turn on the recorder when a final statement had been obtained. But the resulting statements were often called into question later. Too many false confessions and false statements had been made by witnesses, resulting in numerous wrongful convictions that were eventually overturned. So many, in fact, Baltimore PD changed this practice and began requiring the recording of all interrogations of suspects involved in major felonies. Some of Jay's unrecorded pre-interviews lasted for several hours, begging the question, what exactly was said during the time when the tape recorder was off? On Tuesday, April 13th, a grand jury for Baltimore City heard testimony from several witnesses during a hearing presented by Vicki Wash. After the testimony, the grand jury indicted Adnan Syed on charges of first-degree murder. Five months later, on September 7th, Jay Wilde signed a plea deal agreeing that he would plead guilty to accessory after the fact in the murder of Heyman Lee, punishable by up to five years in prison. The deal was offered in exchange for Jay's honest testimony at Adnan's trial. Prosecutor Kevin Urich and Jay's new attorney, Ann Benaroya, who'd both agreed on the deal, suspended it until after the trial to ensure that Jay completed his testimony first. Adnan's defense attorney, Maria Cristina Gutierrez, who went by Cristina, would later argue prosecutorial misconduct regarding this plea deal because of one odd fact. Prosecutor Urich was the one who procured Benaroya for Jay's defense at no cost to Jay. It's not typical by any means for a prosecutor to secure legal counsel for a defendant. It appeared as though the prosecution had gifted Jay a talented and normally expensive defense attorney in exchange for his testimony. Though many people in the legal profession would argue that this was highly unethical. The judge disagreed. And when all was said and done, Jay never served any prison time. On December 8, 1999, Adnan's trial began with Judge William Quarles presiding. Attorneys for the state were Kevin Urich and Kathleen Murphy. Adnan was represented by Christina Gutierrez, a well-known defense attorney who had tried many high-profile cases. Gutierrez, though considered somewhat controversial, was known to be aggressive and keen on details, which helped her win many cases. Over the next several days of trial, multiple witnesses for the prosecution gave their testimony. But on December 15th, everything came to a screeching halt when a disagreement arose between Judge Quarles and Christina Gutierrez. During a heated sidebar, 
Quarles called Gutierrez a liar, and she raised her voice in opposition. Although the discussion was meant to be private, one of the jury members overheard the judge's comments. Gutierrez immediately motioned for a mistrial, and Quarles granted it. The trial concluded at 3.42 p.m., six days after it began. Adnan was denied bail once again, and he remained in custody pending his second trial. Adnan's second trial began on January 21, 2000. A new judge, Wanda Hurd, presided, and the trial would be heard by a new jury. Prosecutors Yurik and Murphy returned as attorneys for the state, and Gutierrez remained as Adnan's defense attorney. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Yurik told the jury that Hayes' own diary, along with witness testimony, cell phone data, and cell tower evidence, would prove that Adnan was guilty of Hayes' murder. Yurik said that Adnan, who was of Pakistani Muslim heritage, had been living a double life. On one hand, he presented himself to his parents and the Muslim community as a good, rule-following religious boy. On the other hand, he was denying his religion, sneaking around and lying to his parents about the fact that he was dating Hay and that he was sexually active. When Hay broke up with him, Yurik said that Adnan felt humiliated, having sacrificed his religion for her. He believed that Hay besmirched his honor, so Adnan set out to kill her. Yurik told the jury that Adnan manipulated his friend, Jay Wilde, into helping him bury Hay's body in Lincoln Park. Jay, who had not been in the gifted program in school like Adnan, and who was poor and had to support himself, was an easy target for Adnan. And though the jury might not like Jay after learning that he was a drug dealer, worked in an adult video store, and had lied several times to detectives, they must remember those things did not affect Jay's main story, that Adnan killed Hay and they buried her in Leakin Park. Gutierrez began her opening statements by reminding the jury that the defense had no duty to present any evidence because Adnan was presumed innocent. The burden of proof was solely on the prosecution, whom she said did not have any evidence to establish when Hay died, let alone who killed her. The only hard facts were that someone had strangled Hay and that she had probably been dead for about two weeks by the time her body was found. Gutierrez went on to say that Adnan was an American and a Muslim. He was just like any other American teen, and like many other Muslim teens for that matter. He was dating, having sex, and experimenting with marijuana, even though it wasn't permitted by his parents or his religion. Gutierrez described Adnan and Hay as two star-crossed lovers from different cultures each with personal family dynamics that affected their relationship. She said their relationship was a typical, dramatic young romance with ups and downs and several breakups. The two of them were very affectionate while together and remained close friends after they broke up. Gutierrez told the jury that the state had no evidence to support the idea that Adnan was filled with rage or capable of murder. She reminded the jury how the state was knowingly using the testimony of a proven liar, Jay Wilde, as the basis for their entire case. She brought up the fact that physical evidence and DNA had been recovered by detectives, but for some reason, it had never been tested. The few items that had been tested 
did not match Adnan. In fact, there was not one single corroborative piece of physical evidence linking Adnan to the murder. For most people, the new year means rethinking how they take care of themselves. Native makes it easy to switch to a personal care brand that makes all their products with simple ingredients. Native has key aspects that will have you rethinking your current deodorant. For example, their deodorants are aluminum-free, offer 24-hour odor defense, and they leave zero residue on your skin after applying. Their coconut and vanilla-scented deodorant is amazing, and it's among the 10 different scents that Native offers. Honestly, skip your perfume and just use Native deodorant. It smells so pleasant and lasts all day. Whether you're sitting in an office or moving around a lot, Native not only has your armpits covered, but they also offer a great line of body wash, toothpaste, shampoo and conditioner, and more. This year, up your personal hygiene routine with Native. Go to nativedo.com murderish or use promo code murderish at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedo.com murderish or use promo code murderish at checkout for 20% off your first order. Let me tell you why Thrive Cosmetics is such an awesome beauty and skincare brand. Their products are certified vegan and cruelty-free, contain no parabens, sulfates, or phthalates, and they are a company with a cause. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission allows for a donation to be made with every purchase to help women emerging from homelessness, for example. My makeup routine now includes Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara because it makes my lashes appear longer and thicker than ever before. My skincare routine also includes their Defying Gravity Eye Lifting Cream because it lifts and tightens the skin around my eyes with hydration that also smooths fine lines. Talk about a miracle in a bottle. Now is a great time to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com murderish. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash murderish for 15% off your first order. Have you been wanting to learn a new skill but can't seem to find the time to follow through with it? Masterclass offers a huge selection of classes, all taught by people who are at the top of their field. I've been taking the Build Your Stream class taught by Tyler Ninja Blevins, a successful game streamer. In the 30-day class, I'm learning the basics of streaming content, how to build my brand, and create an interactive online community. The class is so easy to follow, and I get to take it from home and on my own schedule. Masterclass has hundreds of video lessons from some of the most brilliant minds in the world. The library of classes includes categories like food, design and style, sports and gaming, writing, music, arts and entertainment, business, and so much more. And you can take the classes at your own pace. There's no need to sit down in front of your computer, phone, or smart TV from start to finish. When I'm done with my current master class, I'm diving into Tan France's class where he teaches style for everyone because I'm on a mission to create new and fresh looks with clothes I already have. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every master class and as a murderish listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash murderish now. 
That's masterclass.com slash murderish for 15% off Masterclass. The state's case began on January 27th and lasted for 16 days. It was the state's contention that on January 13, 1999, Adnan left school around 10.45 a.m., picked up Jay, and the two went shopping together. During that time, Adnan decided to kill Hay because she had broken his heart and dishonored him, and he enlisted Jay to help. Adnan then drove them back to school at 12.45 p.m., leaving Jay his car and cell phone so Jay could pick him up later. Jay then went about his day in Adnan's car and waited for Adnan to call. As soon as school ended at 2.15 p.m., the state contended that Adnan tricked Hay into giving him a ride. The two of them ended up at the Best Buy parking lot where Adnan strangled Hay in her car, then put her dead body in the trunk. At 2.36 p.m., the state said that Adnan called Jay from a payphone at the Best Buy and told him to pick him up. This timeline meant that Adnan and Hay left school, drove to Best Buy where Adnan killed her, and then called Jay to pick him up within about a 21-minute time frame. The state claimed that when Jay got to Best Buy, Adnan showed him Hay's body in the trunk of her own car. Then they left, with Adnan driving Hay's car and Jay driving Adnan's car. They drove to the I-70 park-and-ride where they left Hay's car and body. According to the state, Adnan and Jay then drove around in Adnan's car, made several stops, and then they dropped Adnan back at school at 4.30 p.m. for track practice. Once track was over, Adnan called Jay to pick him up. Jay returned to the school and the two of them drove around and made some stops. Later, after Adnan received a call on his cell phone from Officer Adcock, they drove back to Hayes' car. The state said that Adnan drove Hayes' car with her body still in the trunk and Jay followed in Adnan's car. They drove to Leakin Park where they dug a hole and buried Hay at 7 p.m. The state called over 25 witnesses to support their claims, including friends and family of both Hay and Adnan, teachers and coaches from Woodlawn High School, forensic specialists, crime lab employees, detectives, police officers, and the medical examiner. Witnesses testified that Hay and Adnan were loving towards each other and that they remained good friends after they broke up. Though one witness, Debbie Warren, said part of the reason that Hay broke up with Adnan was because he was possessive and verbally aggressive. Debbie, who was a friend of both Hay and Adnan, read parts of Hay's diary to the jury. Prosecutor Murphy noted one section where Hay wrote that two obstacles in her relationship with Adnan were his religion and his possessiveness. On cross-examination, however, Debbie conceded that the diary only mentioned possessiveness one time, and the full sentence was actually, the second thing is possessiveness, independence rather. I'm a very independent person. Debbie also testified there were no entries that complained of any aggressiveness. Several witnesses testified that Hay was last seen on January 13th, sometime between 2.15 and 2.20 p.m., leaving Woodlawn High School. She was on her way to pick up her cousin from school, and then, depending on the testimony, either back to school for a wrestling match or to work at LensCrafters. Later, Hay was going to see her boyfriend, Don. 
Gutierrez missed an opportunity to call into question the time that Hay went missing when she cross-examined Debbie about Hay's diary. Though Debbie did not testify during direct examination as to the last time she saw Hay on January 13th, she had previously told detectives during an interview that she remembered seeing Hay after school between 2.45 and 3.15 p.m. in the lobby area of the gym. She also claimed to have seen Adnan in the guidance counselor's area at 2.45 p.m. At that time, it seemed clear to Debbie that Adnan was on his way to track practice because she said he had his track gear with him. This information, if called out by Gutierrez during trial, could have called into question the state's timeline as well as provided a possible alibi for Adnan. The prosecution used Adnan's differing statements to Officer Adcock and Detective O'Shea about getting a ride from Hay to suggest that he lied and had in fact gotten a ride from her. During cross-examination, however, it was revealed that O'Shea never found anyone who actually saw Adnan get a ride from Hay that day. Don Kleindens testified regarding his relationship with Hay at the time of her disappearance. He spoke about meeting Adnan in the parking lot outside of LensCrafters sometime in December after Adnan and Hay had broken up. He said Adnan made small talk with him for a while and then told Don that he was just checking on him to make sure he was a good guy. On the stand, Don also verified his printed time card from the Hunt Valley LensCrafters store for January 13th. The time card was created by the manager of the store, who also happened to be Don's biological mother, not to be confused with his manager at the Owens Mills store, where Don usually worked, who was his mother's girlfriend. The prosecution had obtained Don's time card sometime after October 4th, which was the first time its existence was ever documented. On cross-exam, Don described Adnan as nice and courteous when they met outside of LensCrafters. Don also told the jury that he was never fingerprinted by investigators and did not have samples of his blood, hair, or saliva taken. He was also never interviewed or interrogated at the police station, and none of his statements were recorded. Don also admitted that he and Hay were sexually active. Another witness testified that while processing Hay's vehicle, it was discovered that the left selector lever was broken. That said, a video of a hanging right selector lever was shown to the jury. The state claimed that Hay was killed in the front seat of her vehicle and the lever was somehow broken during the struggle. However, on cross-exam, it was discovered that there was no evidence showing that the lever had been broken at the time the car was located. In fact, any video that did show a hanging lever was recorded after the vehicle had already been processed and released back to Hay's family making it impossible to know when the damage may have occurred. Forensic specialists testified about the state of Hay's body when it was found in Leakin Park. They determined that it was consistent with someone who had been killed on January 13th. However, on cross-exam, they admitted that the state of her body was also consistent with someone who had been killed several days prior to the 13th or even several days after. There was no way to pinpoint an exact date or time when Hay was killed. Romano Thomas, a lab tech from the Baltimore PD Mobile Crime Lab, testified that he collected items found at the burial site 
as well as items from Hay's vehicle. Items collected from the vehicle included a shirt with possible blood stains on it lying on the driver's seat, an insurance and registration card found in the glove box, a handwritten note to Don, and a map book in the rear seat with one page torn out. The torn out page showed the area of Leakin Park. From the trunk, Thomas collected a thank you card and envelope, as well as what appeared to be flower paper used to wrap fresh flowers. On cross-exam, Gutierrez got Thomas to concede that although the torn out page did show Leakin Park, which was in Baltimore City, the majority of the page showed the area of Baltimore County, which was where both Hay and Adnan lived and went to school. There were also several other parks shown on the torn out page. Sharon Talmadge, the Baltimore PD latent print expert, testified that she found latent fingerprints matching Adnan on the thank you card and envelope, which was postmarked for October 3rd, 1998, two months before their final breakup. Adnan's prints were also found on the flower paper and on the insurance card, and his palm print was found on the back cover of the map book. Talmadge found 16 other fingerprints in Hay's vehicle that did not belong to Hay, Adnan, or Jay, including one on the rearview mirror. The prints on the rearview mirror could have been extremely helpful to the investigation. Perhaps Hay's killer had adjusted the rearview mirror before he drove her vehicle, but the rearview mirror prints were never identified. On cross-examination, Talmadge stated she did not find Adnan's prints anywhere else on the map book or any of the map pages, including the torn out page. There were, however, several other prints found on the pages which were not identified and did not belong to Adnan. Talmadge could not offer a determination regarding when these prints were left on the items and agreed that it was not unusual to find Adnan's prints in Hay's car, including on paperwork in the car because he had been a driver and passenger in Hay's car countless times, even as late as two weeks before Hay's disappearance. Not to mention, the map book belonged to Adnan and had potentially been in the vehicle since he had dated Hay. Salvatore Bianca from the Baltimore PD Trace Analysis Unit testified that he found blood and nasal mucus on the shirt inside of Hay's vehicle. He also found two hairs on the shirt that did not belong to Hay and were not animal hairs. The hairs were not consistent with Adnan's hair either. On cross-exam, Bianca informed the jury that although the blood was submitted for further testing, he did not submit the nasal mucus for DNA testing. He also did not attempt to compare the hairs to anyone other than Adnan. In addition, the trace analysis unit did not find any fibers from Hay on Adnan's boots nor any matching soil from the burial location. Bianca was never asked to test any other evidence, including the trunk of Hay's car. The blood on the shirt was later tested by a forensic chemist, and it was found to most likely belong to Hay. It did not match Adnan. Assistant medical examiner Dr. Margarita Carell testified that the cause of death was manual strangulation. She explained that when the flow of blood to the brain is interrupted during strangulation, a person will go unconscious within 10 seconds. If not revived soon thereafter, the person will die within a few minutes. 
During Hay's autopsy, she noted decomposition and fixed liver mortis consistent with the murder and burial occurring on January 13th. Carell explained that liver mortis, or lividity, is the settling of the blood after death as gravity pulls it to the part of the body closest to the ground. In other terms, if someone dies lying on their stomach, face down, blood will settle on their stomach, face, and other parts of the body closest to the ground. Lividity appears on the body in the form of bluish-purplish discoloration of the skin. Hay had fixed lividity, which happens over the course of multiple hours, depending on the temperature where the body has been lying. Hay also had bruising to the right ear and right side of her head. Carell told the jury that when she examined a photo of the shirt found in Hay's car, the blood looked like it could be pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema, or fluid mixed with red blood cells that collects in the lungs, can escape a body at death via the nose or mouth. On cross-exam, Correll noted that pulmonary edema was not specific to any one injury and it could mean many things. It was not unusual to see it in a strangled body. She added that there was no evidence of any blood having exited Hay's body via her nose or mouth. Correll conceded that although the condition of Hay's body was consistent with a death and burial on January 13th, it was equally consistent with a death and burial occurring only two weeks prior to her body being found. There was no way to know for certain. Additionally, Hay could have been killed on one day and buried on another. Correll also explained that there were no injuries that broke Hay's skin, no external bleeding, and no signs of defensive wounds, which countered the prosecution's claim that the selector lever in Hay's car was broken during a struggle between Hay and her killer. As far as lividity, until it is fixed, which takes several hours, it will shift as the body shifts. If the killer moved Hay's body after she was dead and before lividity was fixed, her blood would move around her body. If that happens, there will be visual evidence of the changing locations of the blood as it settles. Carell found no evidence of that on Hay. Her lividity was fixed and frontal, meaning she was lying face down until it was fixed. Because Hay was found lying on her right side, not face down, this also meant that Hay likely could have been held somewhere else for some time prior to her burial. The fixed frontal lividity seems to suggest that after Hay was killed, her body was lying face down for several hours before it was moved to Leakin Park and buried. Because there were no eyewitnesses to the actual killing and no physical or DNA evidence linking Adnan to Hay's murder or her burial, the prosecution's case ultimately came down to Jay's testimony. The state argued that his testimony was supported by the cell phone evidence, and the cell phone evidence was supported by his testimony. Jay was on the witness stand for five days, during which time he laid out a complicated and confusing timeline that began on January 13, 1999. He said that around 10.45 in the morning, Adnan called to see if he wanted to go shopping for a present for Jay's girlfriend, Stephanie, because it was her birthday. Adnan and Stephanie were close friends. While on the stand, Prosecutor Urich had Jay use the call log for Adnan's cell phone 
and point to that particular phone call for the jury to see. Jay pointed to a call made to his home at 10.45 a.m., which lasted for 28 seconds. Jay said that Adnan arrived at his house around 11.45 a.m. They drove to Security Square Mall, and on the way there, Adnan said he was going to kill Hay because she had broken his heart and dishonored him. According to Jay, Adnan said, I'm going to kill that bitch. They shopped for about one hour and 15 minutes and then drove Adnan back to school for his next class. According to Jay's time estimates, this put Adnan back at school a little after 1 p.m., which threw off the rest of Jay's testimony. If Adnan was dropped off at school around 1 p.m., it was impossible for the rest of the state's timeline to be correct. This was another missed opportunity by Gutierrez, as she did not bring up this fact during cross-examination. Jay went on to tell the jury that he kept Adnan's car and cell phone so that he could pick up Adnan later in the day. Jay said he then made a call to his friend, Jen Pusateri's house, and spoke to her 15-year-old brother, Mark. Yurik again had Jay point to a call on the log made to Jen's house at 12.07 p.m., which lasted for 21 seconds. Mark told Jay that Jen wasn't home, but Jay said he drove to her house anyway and played video games with Mark for about 30 minutes. Jay said he and Mark drove to a mall so Jay could finish shopping for Stephanie's gift. Yurik had Jay point to a call on the log made to Jen's house at 12.41 p.m., which lasted for 1 minute and 29 seconds. Jay testified that he did not remember making that call, but he could have called Jen while he was out with Mark to see if she had come home yet. Jay said Adnan also called the cell phone around that time to see where Jay was. The call log shows an incoming call at 12.43 p.m. However, Yurik did not have Jay point this call out. If Jay dropped Adnan back off at school at 1 p.m., as he'd testified, a phone call from Adnan at 12.43 made no sense. After shopping, Jay said he and Mark returned to Jen's house where they played video games in the basement. During that time, Jay received two calls, one from Jen and one from Adnan. Adnan called to find out if the cell phone was turned on and to say that he would call Jay at 3.45 to be picked up. On the call log, there was an incoming call at 2.36 p.m., which lasted for only five seconds, and an incoming call at 3.15 p.m., which lasted for 20 seconds. It's unclear from Jay's testimony which call came from who. Yurik did not have Jay point out these calls on the log, possibly because the state claimed that the 2.36 p.m. call was Adnan telling Jay to pick him up at Best Buy, and it was essential to their case. Jay's testimony did not support that claim, but again, it was not addressed by the state or the defense. Next, Jay said that sometime after 3 p.m., Jen finally came home and they played video games. At 3.45 p.m., Adnan had not called like he said he would, so Jay left Jen's to drive to another friend's house. During that time, he said Adnan called and told him to meet him at the Best Buy parking lot. There was no incoming phone call during this time on the call log. Regardless, Jay continued his testimony saying that he drove to Best Buy 
where he saw Adnan waiting on foot by a payphone. This part of Jay's testimony was also confusing, as the question of why Adnan never called Jay to pick him up as planned and somehow ended up at Best Buy on foot was never answered. Jay said Adnan motioned for him to drive around to the side lot, which he did. Jay testified that Adnan told him to park next to a gray Nissan Sentra. Jay said he got out of the car, and Adnan said, Are you ready for this? He opened the trunk of the Nissan, and inside was Hay's dead body. Next, Jay said Adnan drove the Nissan with Hay's body in the trunk, and Jay followed in Adnan's car. They drove to the I-70 park-and-ride where Adnan parked Hay's car. Jay said Adnan took a black bag from Hay's car and put it into his trunk, then got into the driver's seat of his own car. Jay said they drove away, leaving Hay's car with her body in the trunk. As they drove around, Adnan casually suggested they buy some weed. Jay often bought weed from a friend of his named Patrick. So Jay said he called Jen to see if she knew if Patrick was home. Yurik had Jay point out this call on the log, made to Jen's house at 3.21 p.m., which lasted for 42 seconds. Jay had previously testified that he didn't leave Jen's house until 3.45 p.m., which would mean that this 3.21 p.m. call to Jen was made while Jay was sitting next to Jen in her house. This made absolutely no sense, but again, Yurik did not address the conflict and instead pushed on with Jay's testimony. Next, Jay said that Adnan made a call to a girl and had a short conversation, during which time Jay got on the phone to say hello. This call happened while they were driving to Forest Park Avenue to buy weed. Yurik had Jay point this call out on the log, but only to say that he did not recognize the phone number. Yurik did not have him point out the time of the call or the duration. The log showed that the call was made to a number later identified as Nisha Tana's at 3.32 p.m., which lasted for 2 minutes and 22 seconds. It was the state's contention that this call to Nisha proved that Adnan was with Jay at that time and not at track practice because Jay did not know Nisha. He would have no reason to call her Adnan, on the other hand, had begun dating Nisha in January of 1999 and called her often. Once again, neither the prosecution nor the defense addressed the fact that this call was made prior to the time that Jay said he left Jen's house, when Adnan was not with him. Earlier in the trial, Nisha Tana testified about speaking to Adnan many times on her private home line, the same number shown on the call log. Yurik asked Nisha if she remembered ever getting a phone call from Adnan where he put Jay on the phone to say hello. Nisha said that she did remember a call like that. She then started to say that Adnan had called from the adult store where Jay worked, but Yurik quickly interrupted her saying, No, don't. Tell us what the defendant told you. After being interrupted, Nisha said Adnan put Jay on the phone and he said hello. It was a very short call, perhaps one to two minutes, and it happened in the evening. Yurik directed Nisha's attention to the call log, which showed a call to her phone at 3.32 p.m. Nisha could not say for sure if that was the call she was remembering. Prior to the start of trial, Gutierrez's private investigator discovered 
that Jay did not start working at the adult store until the end of January. Gutierrez failed to point out this fact to the jury, which would have shown that the call Nisha remembered most likely took place well after January 13th and therefore was irrelevant to the case. Additionally, on cross-exam, Gutierrez did not ask Nisha to clarify what she had started to say to Yurik about Adnan calling from the adult store where Jay worked. If the call to Nisha was initiated at the adult store where Jay worked, then it most definitely did not happen on January 13th because Jay was not employed there at the time. Gutierrez did have Nisha point out that her phone was only answered by her and that she did not have voicemail or an answering machine at the time. The implication was that no one actually answered the 3.32 p.m. call, which would come into play later during the defense's case. After addressing the call to Nisha, Yurik had Jay point out a call on the log that was made at 3.48 p.m. and lasted for 1 minute and 25 seconds. Jay identified this number as belonging to his friend, Phil, but he didn't remember making the call. Next, Jay said that he called his friend Patrick in order to buy some weed, but he wasn't home. Yurik had Jay point to the call on the log made to Patrick's house at 3.59 p.m., which lasted for 25 seconds. Jay said he and Adnan continued driving around, eventually buying some weed. Next, Jay said he called Jen to see if their mutual friend, Christy Vinson, was home. Yurik had Jay point to a call on the log made to Jen's house at 4.12 p.m., which lasted for 28 seconds. After that, Jay said Adnan wanted to be taken back to school so he could be seen at track practice. During the drive back to school, Jay testified that Adnan told him Hay had kicked off the turn signal in her car while he was killing her and that she had tried to apologize to him before she died. Jay said Adnan told him that Hay deserved to die for hurting him. Before exiting the car to go to track practice, Jay said Adnan received a call from someone who spoke what Jay described as Arabic, possibly Adnan's mother. Jay did not point out this call, but the log did show an incoming call at 4.27 p.m., which lasted for 2 minutes and 56 seconds. After the call, Adnan told Jay he was going to practice and would call him on the phone when track was over. Jay told the jury that the last thing Adnan said before leaving the car was, All-knowing is Allah, and motherfuckers think they are hard. I killed somebody with my bare hands. Jay then drove Adnan's car to Christie's house, where he smoked some weed while he waited for Adnan to call. Thirty minutes later, Adnan called to say he was ready to be picked up. Yurik did not have Jay point this call out on the log. However, the log did show an incoming call at 4.58 p.m., which lasted for 19 seconds. Jay said he picked Adnan up and then drove them back to Christie's house. They hung out there with Christy and her boyfriend, Jeff, for about 25 minutes. While there, Adnan received three incoming calls on his cell phone. One was from Hay's family, who were looking for her. The next was Hay's cousin, and it was a wrong number. The third call was from a police officer asking if Adnan had seen Hay. According to Jay, this call caused Adnan to get up and leave the apartment in a frenzy. 
Urich did not have Jay point these calls out on the log, but the log did show incoming calls at 6.07, 6.09, and 6.24 p.m. Gutierrez would later fail to call this testimony into question during her cross-examination. She did not point out that Jay had previously told detectives that the call from the police officer happened while Jay and Adnan were parked in a McDonald's parking lot, not at Christie's house. Jay testified that he followed as Adnan ran out of Christie's apartment. He said they got into Adnan's car and then drove Jay home to his grandmother's house. Once there, Jay said Adnan threatened that he would tell the cops about the fact that Jay sold weed unless Jay helped him get rid of Hay's body. Jay said he was scared that his grandmother would get into trouble because he kept the weed in her house. Out of fear, Jay said he grabbed two shovels and put them in the back seat of Adnan's car. Then both of them drove to the I-70 park and ride where Adnan got into Hayes' vehicle. Jay then testified to a complicated back and forth maneuvering of both Hay and Adnan's vehicles as they drove for about 45 minutes looking for a place to bury Hay's body. Eventually, he told the jury that they ended up in Leakin Park. At some point, Adnan and Jay were separated while Adnan looked for a place inside the park and Jay waited for him on the road. While waiting for Adnan, Jay paged Jen to tell her he would be late for a meetup they planned at 7 p.m. Yurik had Jay point out a call on the log, placed to Jen's pager at 7 p.m., which lasted for 23 seconds. Jay said he and Adnan ended up in the woods digging Hay's grave when Jen called in response to the page. Adnan answered the phone, told her Jay was busy, and hung up the phone. The call log showed an incoming call at 7.09 p.m. However, Yurik did not have Jay pointed out. Jay said that he and Adnan continued to dig, then returned the shovels to Adnan's back seat. They separated again, and Adnan put Hay's body into the hole by himself. Then the two of them came back together at the burial site, and they started to put dirt on top of Hay's body. But Jay stopped because he couldn't handle it. He said Adnan continued to throw dirt and leaves on top of hay, while Jay smoked a cigarette. Adnan received another call during this time from someone who spoke what Jay described as Arabic. Yurik did not have Jay point out the call. However, the log did show an incoming call at 7.16 p.m. Next, Jay said Adnan put the shovels into his car. Then he drove Hay's car and Jay drove Adnan's car as they left Leakin Park. They drove around for a while until Adnan parked Hay's car behind some apartments near Route 40. Adnan got back into his own vehicle and drove Jay home. On the way to his house, Jay paged Jen twice. The first time he left a voicemail asking her to pick him up from the mall. Then in the second page, he changed the location to his house. Yurik had Jay point out these calls on the log, both to Jen's pager at 8.04 and 8.05 p.m. Before dropping Jay off, Adnan stopped at the rear of the Westview Mall, where Jay said he threw Hay's wallet into the trash. Jay testified that he threw his two shovels into the dumpster behind Value City. Adnan then dropped Jay off at his grandmother's house, and Adnan drove away. Jay went into the house, immediately changed his clothes, and bagged up everything he had been wearing, worried that they had dirt and other evidence on them. 
Jay said Jen picked him up sometime after 8 p.m. Right away, Jay said he told Jen that if anything happened to him, she should know that he did not kill Hay. They drove to Jay's girlfriend Stephanie's house, where Jay dropped off her birthday presents. Next, Jen drove them to Value City so Jay could wipe down the shovels to get rid of any fingerprints. Jay said he and Jen then went to Superfresh, and while Jen went inside, Jay threw his bag of clothes into the dumpster behind the store. Afterward, Jen drove them to Christie's house, where they spent the rest of the night until Jay went home at about 11 p.m. Though Gutierrez had failed to point out previous inconsistencies in Jay's testimony, she pounced during one particular cross-examination. Gutierrez questioned Jay about how he had given several interviews to detectives and how some were recorded and some were not. She attempted to find out what was said while the recorder was off and noted that detectives had called Jay a liar once the tape had been turned on. Jay agreed that he had lied to McGillivarian Ritz multiple times. He said he was scared that if he didn't give a statement, he would be the one charged with murder because that's exactly what detectives said would happen if Jay didn't talk. During his first interview on tape, Jay told detectives that Adnan showed him Hay's body in the trunk of her car at a location off of Edmondson Avenue, not at Best Buy. It wasn't until confronted with Jen Pusateri's comments during her interview that Jay changed his story to Best Buy. Another inconsistency Gutierrez pulled from Jay's testimony was that he initially told detectives he went back to his house after dropping Adnan at track practice. Then he changed the location to Gelston Park before changing it again to Christie's house. Jay also didn't mention that he had thrown away his clothes until his fourth statement to detectives. Gutierrez also confronted Jay with the fact that Jen told detectives that she took the two of them to a party at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, or UMBC, on the night of January 13th. Jay was adamant that he did not go to a party and that Jen had lied. Gutierrez asked Jay about his relationship with his girlfriend, Stephanie. He said he was aware that her parents did not approve of him because Stephanie had a bright future with plans for college, and he did not. Gutierrez pointed out how Adnan and Stephanie had known each other for a long time and that she considered Adnan to be her best friend. Jay said he knew they were close, but did not know Stephanie referred to Adnan as her best friend. Jay became slightly annoyed when Gutierrez pushed the fact that Adnan and Stephanie had been very close for a long time. The state called Jen Pusateri to testify. Jen told the jury that her younger brother, Mark, usually got out of school around 1 p.m., even though Jay had testified that he was with Mark at the Pusateri house playing video games at noon on January 13th. Also in contrast to Jay's testimony, Jen said she got home from work between 1 and 1.30 p.m., and Jay came to her house after she got home. Jen said they played video games until Jay left at about 3.45 p.m., which was consistent with Jay's testimony. Jen confirmed that she and Jay made plans to hang out later in the evening, and at around 7 p.m., she got a page from Jay. She couldn't understand what Jay was saying in his message, so she called Adnan's cell phone. 
A male answered the phone and said Jay was busy. 10 to 15 minutes later, Jay called and asked her to pick him up at Westview Mall, which she did. She arrived first and parked in front of Value City. Then Adnan and Jay pulled up in Adnan's car. Jen told the jury that Adnan said hello, then Jay got into her car and they drove away. This part of Jen's testimony was very different from Jay's, as he had testified that Jen picked him up at his house. According to Jen, as soon as Jay got into her car, he told her that Adnan strangled Hay in the Best Buy parking lot and that he saw Hay's dead body in the trunk. This statement also differed from Jay's testimony, where he claimed to have only told Jen that he did not kill Hay and nothing else. Jen told the jury that she and Jay drove to the dumpsters behind Westview Mall so Jay could wipe down the shovels. Afterward, Jen drove them to Stephanie's house sometime between 8.30 and 9 p.m. Then Jen said she drove them to a party at UMBC, which Jay denied, before both of them went to Christie's house. Later, Jen drove Jay home. Unlike Jay's testimony, Jen said that it was not until the following day January 14th, that she drove him to get rid of his clothes and boots, and it was behind a store called F&M, not Superfresh, as Jay had testified. On cross-exam, Jen said that she had lied to detectives during her first interview, which was not taped. Initially, Jen told detectives that she didn't know anything about Hay. During that interview, Detective McGillivary told Jen that everyone's a suspect and no one's a suspect, which frightened her. After the interview, Jen said she spoke with Jay to find out what she should tell detectives. The next day, with her lawyer present, Jen told detectives everything she knew, but made it clear that what she knew came directly from Jay. She had not witnessed anything. Jen said Jay never said anything to her about helping to bury Hay's body or about his knowing where her body was located nor did he ever tell her that Adnan was planning to kill Hay. When asked about the shovels, Jen said she drove to the rear of the Westview Mall, where Jay got out of her car and walked toward the dumpster. She stayed in the car as a lookout and did not watch what he was doing. She never actually saw him reach inside of a dumpster, and she never saw any shovels. When Jay got back into the car, Jen said he didn't mention that he found the shovels or that he wiped them down. Jen also testified that when she took Jay to Stephanie's house the night of the 13th, he did not have any presents for her. Christy Vinson was called to testify about Adnan's presence at her house on January 13th, specifically his behavior while there. Christy told the jury that January 13th stood out in her mind because on that day, she had gone to an all-day conference for her social work class that she was taking at UMBC. When she got home from the conference at about 5.15 p.m., her boyfriend Jeff was there. Jay and Adnan showed up around 6 p.m. and left about 20 to 30 minutes later. According to Christy, both Jay and Adnan were acting strange. Christy didn't know Adnan. She had never met him before, so she found it odd that he never introduced himself and just laid down on the floor. Christy said she, Jeff, Jay, and Adnan watched TV and there was no conversation amongst them, which she also found odd. 
At some point, Adnan's cell phone rang. Because it was quiet in the room, Christy could hear Adnan say, they're going to come talk to me. What should I say? What should I do? Then she said Adnan got up and left the apartment and Jay followed after him. Several hours later, Jay and Jen showed up at Christy's apartment. On cross-exam, Christy admitted that all of them may have been high from smoking weed, but she could not remember for sure. Gutierrez wanted the jury to understand that Adnan could have been acting strange because he was high. As far as the phone call Christy testified to, she could not hear who Adnan was talking to, and she couldn't be sure what was being said to him. Also, she did not see Jay at any time that day prior to him coming over with Adnan. This was in contrast to Jay's testimony that he had been at Christie's place for 30 minutes while he waited for Adnan to finish track practice. Abe Warnowitz, an AT&T wireless radio frequency engineer, was called to testify and validate Jay's testimony about the various cell phone calls. Warnowitz's testimony was detailed and extremely technical, the type of testimony that a layperson might find hard to follow. In short, Warnowitz explained that each time a cell phone generates or receives a call, it triggers or pings the closest cellular tower with the strongest signal. Each tower had a specific name, as well as three antennas that each covered a different area around the tower. Each coverage area was approximate and varied based on many different factors, including weather, quality of the cell phone, and the line of sight to the tower. The basic theory was that as a call was made or received, the area where the phone was located could be identified by looking at which tower and antenna was pinged during the call. Warnowitz tested his theory by driving around with Prosecutor Murphy and placing test calls at various locations, including the burial location and the area of Christie's house. Each call he placed pinged the tower corresponding to the coverage area that he was in, which supported the theory. Urich was most interested in proving which towers were pinged during the incoming calls to Adnan's phone while he and Jay were at Christie's house and while they were in Lincoln Park burying Hay's body. According to Warnowitz, if someone was standing in Lincoln Park at the burial site and calls came into their cell phone, it would make sense that the tower that covered Leakin Park was pinged. According to the call log, the incoming calls to Adnan's phone at 7.09 and 7.16 p.m. did ping off of the tower that covered Leakin Park. Warnowitz said it would also make sense that if someone was inside Christie's apartment and received calls on their cell phone, that the calls pinged the tower on the UMBC campus or the tower off of Georgetown Road. According to the call log, the incoming calls that Jay testified came in while Adnan was in Christie's apartment did ping those same towers. Warnowitz's testimony, though high-level and technical, likely came off as a win for the state. On cross-examination, however, it was made clear that during his ping test, Warnowitz initiated all of the calls meaning that no incoming calls were tested for location. Every call tested was outgoing. Also, when Warnowitz tested the burial site, he stood next to the roadway when he made the call. He did not venture into the woods to the actual spot of the burial. If he had, 
the line of sight to the tower likely could have been impeded by the terrain. In addition, he testified that cell coverage maps only indicate an area of coverage under ideal conditions, and that actual coverage might be better or worse than the area indicated. Warnowitz also conceded that the pinging of a cell tower cannot give the exact location or an address for where the cell phone is at the time of the call. It could only determine that wherever the phone was, the call pinged a specific tower from somewhere in the entire coverage area for that tower. Moreover, sometimes multiple towers could be pinged from within the same area. The prosecution then rested their case. It was the defense's turn to present their case and highlight for the jury that Adnan was not a cold-blooded killer. After all was said and done, new information came to light and cast a shadow of doubt on numerous arguments made during the trial. Nobody could have known at the time that this case would essentially be tried again, not in a courtroom setting, but on a world stage. Thanks for joining me for part one of the Heyman Lee case. Stay tuned for part two, the conclusion, which will drop a week from today on January 24th. I've mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. I'm going to be at CrimeCon in Las Vegas in April of this year. It would be so great to meet some of you there. Visit CrimeCon.com to purchase your badge. Use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off of a standard badge. I really hope to see you there. That's CrimeCon.com and use code MURDERISH for 10% off. If you enjoy this podcast, do me the biggest favor and rate and review Murderish in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show. If you listen to Murderish on Spotify, there's now a feature where you can rate the podcast there. Also, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you guys. I do a lot of fun Q&As on Instagram, so follow Murderish if you want to participate. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com, click the link to go behind the scenes, and become a Patreon subscriber. Patrons get immediate access to bonus content, as well as other perks. You can also go to Patreon.com to sign up to search for Murderish. Thank you to Becca L., Amanda F., and Lauren for becoming Murderish Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you all so much. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Gina Mazzolini. To see a list of sources used for this episode, visit Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.